Hi, everybody, and welcome to Martin Bandike Undercovers for July 2021, produced in partnership with the Ann Arbor District Library. This month's interview is with Glenn Frankel about his book, Shooting Midnight Cowboy, Art, Sex, Loneliness, Liberation, and the Making of a Dark Classic. Director John Schlesinger's Darling was nominated for five Oscars. He was suddenly the toast of Hollywood, and he used his newfound clout to film an expensive adaptation of Far From the Matting Crowd. Expectations were huge, making the movie's complete critical and commercial failure even more devastating. His next project seemed doubly daring, bordering on foolish. James Leo Herlihy's novel, Midnight Cowboy, about a Texas hustler trying to survive on the mean streets of 1960s New York, was dark and transgressive. Perhaps something about the book's unsparing portrait of cultural alienation resonated with him. John Schlesinger's decision to film it began one of the unlikelier convergences in cinematic history, centering around a city that seemed at first glance as unwelcoming as Hurley's novel itself. Glenn Frankel's Shooting Midnight Cowboy tells the story of a modern classic that by all accounts should never never have become one in the first place. The film's boundary-pushing subject matter, homosexuality, prostitution, sexual assault, earned it an X rating when it first appeared in cinemas in 1969. Much more than a history of Schlesinger's film, Shooting Midnight Cowboy is an arresting glimpse into the world from which it emerged. I began my interview with Glenn Frankel by asking him about the Michigan connection in Midnight Cowboy that has to do with the book's author. Yeah, he's a Detroit boy, James Leo Hurley. He's born in Detroit in 1927, so a working class family. Um, not a very good student, uh, not very well off, barely gets through high school. Uh, He's a complicated young guy, a little depressed. He knows at a pretty early age that his sexuality is complicated, which is to say that he, he thinks he's gay, but not something you talk about at Catholic school or, or with your family either. Escapes out of there, uh, joins the Navy right near the end of the war, comes back from that and, and gets a scholarship, uh, gets money under the GI Bill to go to an experimental art school in North Carolina because he wants to be a writer. Uh, he knows books. He's studied a bit. Uh, his sister uh, helped him with the Book of the Month Club at one point. And so this is a guy who wants to escape Michigan and begin his life as an artist with a capital A. And the college he went to, it's, this is a famous place, Black Mountain College, correct? That's right. It was an experimental art school, mostly with uh, the kids of families from New York and, you know, other large cities. But uh, Jim gets that scholarship. He heads there. Uh, it's a disappointing situation for him because they don't encourage his writing. And he basically walks away from it in a year or so. But before he does, he meets uh, the fabulous Anais Nin. Uh, who later becomes sort of world famous as an erotic diarist uh, and, and a feminist icon in the late 60s, early 70s. But back in the 1947, when they meet, she's just a very frustrated, angry uh, feminist writer who feels she can't 
get a foothold in New York because she's a woman, because she writes a, in a very sort of surreal, uh, intimate sensibility. Anyway, these two meet each other and they're enormously attracted to each other, not sexually on Jim's part, but, but she dresses differently. She talks about art. She's entranced by him. First of all, he's a very handsome young guy. And secondly, his sort of jazzy bebop way of talking and what he has on his mind. So they, they, they form this sort of intimate friendship. Uh, and she helps him over the years. She helps him when he decides to move to New York City. She introduces him to people, helps him pay his, his dental bills, finds him a place to stay. This is Jim making his way to New York, where so many young people in that era and in this era, for that matter, come in order to sort of, you know, create, recreate themselves and become the people they want to be. And as I say, he wants to be a writer. And it's in New York where he actually fulfills that ambition. Glenn, tell us about his career as a writer in New York. Was, was he successful right off or at all? Did he have much success as a writer? Uh, ultimately, he did fine. Um, Jim was not only, you know, a novelist, but also a, a playwright. And for that matter, he was an actor. Again, a very handsome young guy, did some work on the stage. He gets a Broadway uh, play. He co-written uh, in, in the mid-50s called Blue Denim. He authors eventually three novels. The first one, All Fall Down, is made into a, well, not very good movie, but a, but a Hollywood movie starring Warren Beatty and Eva Marie Saint. I mean, he has some success and gradually builds up. Uh, All Fall Down gets very nice reviews. But then he does something different. He writes this novel, Midnight Cowboy. And this novel not only has, for the first time in Jim's you know, work, openly gay characters, uh, but it also roams the streets of New York, uh, 42nd Street specifically in Times Square. It's about this young guy who comes up from Texas, buys a cowboy outfit and comes to New York thinking he's going to succeed as a male hustler. And he thinks his clientele is going to be, you know, uh, affluent, middle-aged, frustrated women who are looking for a young stud. There are no women like that on 42nd Street looking for male hustlers. What there are are gay men. Uh, middle-aged gay men, not always uh, very functional gay men. And so, you know, Joe Buck's adventures, his name is Joe Buck, and his adventures, if you will, in New York, and the way, you know, various predators and con men strip him of his small wallet and, uh, and, and leave him rather homeless and on the street, it, it's a novel that has some comic elements to it, but it's also very bleak. And it is, as I say, Jim Hurley, he never told us in his letters or diaries what he was doing on 42nd Street. But if you read Midnight Cowboy and you see the experiences he has and his knowledge of how the street works and how to be careful and how to avoid the cops and all this, you realize that Jim spent a lot of time out there and that this novel really is in many ways, his most adventurous and interesting and complex piece of work. So how did this book get made into a film by, uh, I mean, your description of this, Glenn, it would, even in 2021 would sound like studios might just run away from this type of subject matter even decades later. Now, I know the times were, they were a change in the 1960s, <laughs> but still, this is really tough stuff for general audiences one would have thought at the time 
how did this novel by Jim get made into a film? What, what was, what, who was, is there one person really responsible for getting this made? Well, really? Yes. Uh, and his name is John Schlesinger. He was a British film director, roughly Jim's age. Uh, but unlike Jim, he grows up in the affluent part of London, North London called Hampstead. He's Jewish. He's gay. He's got parents who are much more understanding of his situation. He gradually, you know, he becomes a documentary filmmaker with BBC television and eventually gets into the movies and does pretty well with his first couple of movies. The, the highlight of which was Darling, this 1965 film starring Julie Christie, which wins her the Oscar for Best Actress in, in her first starring role, wins John a nomination for uh, Best Director, and suddenly, you know, people know about him and he's invited to America. All the great British filmmakers and actors eventually end up in Hollywood, uh, both to make a lot more money and to get the opportunities that Hollywood offers. But John comes to town with this bleak little novel. He's, in, he's interested in Joe Buck as a character, someone who comes to New York, someone who has dreams and aspirations, uh, someone who faces big obstacles. John identified with that, even though he's a successful filmmaker in his own life. He, he's, he's in the closet about his sexuality. Most gay men were in that era. Um, he's an aspiring, you know, towards success, but finds it difficult. He's up and down, has a lot of anxieties. He identifies with this guy and, and the idea of someone who's a dreamer because John's a dreamer himself. And this, the, the, the studios by and large are not interested in this kind of story. They have other movies they'd like John to make, like Funny Girl <laughs> or even Fiddler on the Roof. But a little studio, the smallest of the majors called United Artists, uh, has some people who have been making sort of groundbreaking movies. Remember, we're into the mid-1960s here. The old Hollywood system is beginning to unravel. Right. The old genres like cowboy, you know, Western movies and movie musicals, they're not really attracting the younger uh, ticket buyers, the sort of generation gap, that uh, generation gap generation of baby boomers who are coming into the theaters now and looking for different kinds of entertainment. And so United Artists is willing to take a few more risks. They're, they they give John a very low budget. He hooks up with an independent New York producer named Jerry Hellman. And they're sent out there with, you know, with $1.1 million to make a feature film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And by this time, I mean, Americans had discovered, uh, Foreign films, I mean, Fellini, Godard, Truffaut, so we, sophisticated viewers, and these films became, some of them became rather mainstream to, to, to many folks, uh, brought more adult themes to films, and even in America by 1969, what, Bonnie and Clyde had already been out, which was just this, just a revolutionary Film. I mean, I saw that when I was a kid. When I was, I snuck into the theater when I was twelve or thirteen, and and two thousand one. These were movies that just they were revelations. I mean, they they they're why one of the reasons I'm talking to you today. They just they were so enthralling and they were so utterly different. Um, so yeah, th- there there was this climate where where things different things could make it to the screen. So so how did how did our stars get cast? John John Boyd and Dustin Hoffman were those Schlesinger's uh, first choices for the two roles of Joe Buck and Ratso Rizzo? Not not at all. I mean, um you're right in pointing out that this is a changing era and Dustin Hoffman 
and John Voight were both actors who had young guys who had worked their way up in Manhattan. They thought of themselves as wanting to be theater actors. They took classes. They appeared in off-off-Broadway productions. Hoffman was slowly making, getting a reputation as an actor's actor. John Voight, not so much, but he'd been good in a few things. They did some TV shows. Neither one of them expected to be Hollywood movie stars, and Schlesinger didn't want either one of them. Hoffman's breakthrough was The Graduate, another one of these new, you know, what we now call New Hollywood, but a real breakthrough movie in 1967 that not only makes him a, a movie star from out of nowhere, but also becomes a sort of iconic movie, counterculture movie, you know, a generation gap movie, and there's Dustin Hoffman. Uh, but John Schlesinger didn't want this, you know, new movie star to mess up his little low-budget movie. And after watching The Graduate and seeing this sort of white bread comic character, Benjamin Braddock, he thought there's no way this guy can play Ratso Rizzo, this Bronx-born New York con man, you know, street person. Uh, but Hoffman pushed hard for this part. And eventually he forces Schlesinger to meet with him and they meet up, you know, at an automat on 42nd Street at midnight and Hoffman's in a dirty raincoat and he hasn't shaved in three days and he's got the, the limp that Ratso Rizzo has in the book. And by 5 a.m. He, he, he sort of warns Schlesinger down to the point where he admitted, all right, you know, you fit in here. I get it. And, and Schlesinger gave him the part. Hmm. For John Voight, it was even harder, though, because in the book, the, the Joe Buck character is described as tall, but dark haired and a certain kind of look. And John Voight is the six foot three inch sort of Dutch boy looking dimpled uh, cheeked guy. And Schlesinger didn't want him. He wanted an actor, actually, Michael Sarazen, a very handsome French Canadian actor who'd been in a few movies. And in fact, they offered Sarazen the part and they even started fitting him for costumes. But Sarazen was signed to another studio that asked for a lot more money than, than Schlesinger and Hellman wanted to give him. So they started looking at the audition tapes of, of you know, Sarazen versus John Voight versus some other people. They said every time they looked at the tape, Sarazen looked a little worse and Voight looked a little better. <laughs> so eventually they gave it to Voight. Um, and another person, uh, Marion Doherty, the casting director, this sort of hard-bitten, very creative New Yorker uh, who had worked with all these people and cast them mostly in, in TV roles and things like that. She pushed hard for Voight. And Schlesinger, who is a very collaborative person, would later on admit when people would ask, well, because Voight and Hoffman are so good in this movie and they, they give such a collaborative performance um, it's not just one of them, you know, standing out. It's the two of them working together, challenging each other. Both of them, as I say, trained New York actors. And they've just bring this thing. I mean, I don't know about you, Martin, but I can't think of a movie with two male stars uh, who are better than these two guys in Midnight Cowboy. They're just, they're both just so absolutely incredible. How, tell us a little bit about the production. Was it all shot on location in, in New York? Well, most of the movie is shot in New York. Yeah, um, about two thirds of it, I would say. Um, but there are some scenes from Texas. Uh, one very at the beginning when you know when Joe Boy, uh, Joe Buck leaves Texas to come up to New York, and then there are little flash cuts throughout the movie of his life back in Texas to sort of explain why he's such a solitary you know, figure who's, um, and why his sexuality is so confused and, uh, because, 
He was gang raped as a young man. Other things have happened. He was abandoned by his mother, neglected by his grandmother. You know, we get this feel, and these are Texas moments. And then, of course, eventually when these two guys finally escape New York toward the end of the movie and Joe Buck takes his very sick partner and gets on a bus to Florida to try to rescue him from the New York winter, we get a couple of scenes in Florida as well. But the most of it's in New York. A lot of it's shot out on the streets. Some of it's what's called stolen shots, where they've got a, you know, a camera with a long lens sitting in a van somewhere filming John Boyd and Dustin Hoffman, you know, 300 yards away, uh, walking in a crowd of real people who don't recognize them as movie stars. <laughs> Lots of things going on. It, it has almost a documentary feel about New York in the in the 1960s. Um, it's filmed all over town in some great different moments. So, Glenn, as a music host here in Ann Arbor, Midnight Cowboy has two of the most iconic songs on it, the, the Midnight Cowboy theme and Fred Neal's Everybody's Talking. I just did a major feature on Fred Neal, who wrote this song. His version is not in the film. It's Harry Nilsson's version. Let's start with that song first. How did Fred Neal's song, done by Harry Nilsson, end up in Midnight Cowboy? It's perfect. When you think of the film, you think everybody's talking. I mean, to me, that it just comes right to my head. I don't know of many other films where it's just the absolute music, perfect music choice. How did it come about? Well, John Schlesinger wanted to have a, a some kind of song to help hold the movie together. He'd seen The Graduate, again, which had a breakthrough in music using Simon and Garfunkel songs, yeah. using Sounds of Silence three times early on. So Schlesinger liked this idea. He had a young partner named Michael Childers, a UCLA film student who he brought to New York with him. They were lovers. He, he gave Michael the assignment of finding, you know, music. Michael was uh, in his early 20s. So Michael's looking at all these albums and he comes across Ariel Ballet, this album by this unknown singer, Harry Nielsen. Nobody knew who Nielsen was back then. It's the only, and everybody's talking on, is on that album. And Schlesinger likes the sound of it. He likes the rhythm. And he decides to do a sort of a temporary edit of the movie to that rhythm. But also the lyrics, um, because they are poignant, they are intimate, they're about a lonely person trying to find a place in the world, wanting to go somewhere and find a home. And he felt that fit very well with Joe Buck's state of mind. With the, They're enigmatic, they're powerful, they get you inside Joe Buck's head. And so Schlesinger stuck with this song, even though they didn't own the rights to it, they had to buy that, United Artists wanted a different song. <laughs> Bob Dylan offered them Lay, Lady, Lay. Tony <laughs> Mitchell wrote a ballad called Midnight Cowboy. But Schlesinger didn't, you know, he stuck with everybody's talking because it had a more, you know, it, it's a catchy, lively song. But at the same time, it's extremely poignant and captured, he thought, Joe Buck's vulnerability. The, the second song, of course, is the Midnight Cowboy theme, which is an instrumental that features a sort of wailing harmonica. It's written by the great John Barry, who was also the musical director uh, for the movie. And it captures Joe's sense of loneliness and disconnection. Uh, it's played most powerfully about a third through the movie where Joe is down to almost no money in his wallet. 
Yeah, he's homeless. He's been kicked out of his cheap hotel because he can't afford the rent. They've taken all his goods, earthly goods, except for the clothes on his back and his little white transistor radio. Mm -hmm. And he's walking 42nd Street trying to figure out what to do. There's no dialogue. He sees these lonely male hustlers under movie marquees. And he himself is recognizing that he's going to have to break with his business model. There aren't going to be any beautiful women in bed with him. It's going to have to be some sort of pathetic uh, male customer. Uh, and that's, and, and it's a, it's a tragic moment in a way, but it sums up both his loneliness and it sort of has a Western feel. I mean, uh, 42nd Street becomes almost, you could almost see sagebrush rolling through it mm -hmm. as that harmonica wails and Joe Buck in his faux cowboy outfit is trying to figure out how to get on with his life. Yeah, that harmonica player is in that track, Toots Tielemans, right, I believe? That's right, that's right. Uh, Belgian, I believe, is Toots yeah. Origins. He's a master of the harmonica. And it, 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 that song, too, is then played again toward the end of the movie. And, and so those two themes really tie together. And they're, they're so memorable and they add so much to this film. You know, we think of movies as one thing, but without the music, Midnight Cowboy, I don't think works anywhere near as well. True. How was the uh, commercial response to the film? Did it sell a lot of tickets? And what was the critical response? Again, when we're in the mid to late 60s, there's such a sea change with, with culture and some of the, oh boy, movie critics at that time. How do you put it nicely? You can't. They, they didn't get these new films very well. Even some critics who... We esteem some of us these days, uh, major names. Are, I look at their reviews and go, wow, you're, you're not understanding things, Miss Kale. <laughs> well, Pauline Kale did not like this movie. She didn't like any of John Schlesinger's movies. Nothing. She thought they were too obvious. And, you know, um, she just, she, you know, she had strong personal preferences. Let's put it that way. Yeah. She hated 2001 too, as I recall. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. She's, she, she had a home run with Bonnie and Clyde and yes. some other things, but you know, the thing is the movie got good reviews. Some, some people loved it. Others, uh, you know, thought it was innovative. They didn't expect to make a dime's worth of profit with this movie. It's kind of a bleak story as we talked about earlier. Yeah. Nonetheless, to everyone's surprise, this movie did very well at the box office. There were lines forming outside the movie theater all the way to the 59th Street Bridge on the first day of general tickets. Part of the reason, I think, was Dustin Hoffman. Um, he had become a counterculture icon after uh, The Graduate, and he drew in the crowds. I went to see this movie, you know, I think I was 18 at the time. Um, partly because I want to see Dustin Hoffman in a different kind of role. And he's terrific in this movie and so different than the character he played in The Graduate. Part of it is also, you know, we were looking for more adult themes. We were looking for more complex stories. This movie kind of tickled the fancy of a lot of younger people. It also happened to be rated X. And there's a long story behind that. But nonetheless, that was a draw to see something different. Uh, rated under the new rating system as, as absolutely the most adult thing you could go see. I think in the end, United Artists rather skillfully used that to attract at least the early audiences to the film. So it made a lot of money, and the critical reviews were, were pretty good. Mm -hmm. Kid, <laughs> without going into exhaustive detail, it is quite a story. 
how did the film become rated X? This this is <laughs> this is a strange story, isn't it? Well, it is, and uh, this one of the surprises to me in working on the book was the level of sort of homophobia and fear of homosexuality, even in a liberal place like New York. Yeah. Um, this is partly because the Freudians and the psychoanalytical community had its own theories about homosexuality and how to cure it. Mm-hmm. Uh, people are undergoing conversion therapy. Homosexuality was considered a, not only a disease, but a contagious disease. It's a little bit like, you know, COVID-19. Oh, uh, and it could be transmitted to young people. So because Midnight Cowboy, the movie, has both some gay coding in it and because it has gay characters and a couple of pretty, I would say, cold uh, gay sex scenes, not, no nudity, nothing like that, but nonetheless, raw and powerful and difficult scenes. United Artists, even though they loved the movie and knew it was a serious movie, were worried about what its impact would be, on, I guess, on young people. Uh, so they took it to a very prominent psychiatrist who said, yeah, you're absolutely right. This movie could be problematic. Now, the new ratings board had rated the movie R because it recognized the folks on the board recognized the quality of the movie. But the head of United Artists, Arthur Krim, a good citizen of the world and everything, decided to follow the advice of the psychiatrist, and he rated it X himself, so that young people couldn't be exposed to something that might cause them somehow to become gay. Wow. And, and uh, <laughs> But Krim didn't tell anybody he did this, and everybody assumed the, the, the prudish ratings board had done it. The movie goes on to be nominated, the only, you know, the first X-rated movie to be nominated for an Academy Award, and then it wins the Academy Award. And United Artists comes back to the ratings board and says, gee, we'd really like that R now because they can expand it to many more theaters with an R than with an X. And the ratings board says, sure. But everybody always assumed that it was X for one reason, whereas it was done simply by the people who, who owned the movie. Who owned the movie. And and talk more about how it did at the Oscars. How many nominations, how, how many wins did it get? It got seven nominations, including nominations for Best Actor for both Voight and Hoffman. They yes. lost out to John Wayne. Wow. They were both nominated for Lead Actor? That's right. Oh, so they, they probably split the vote? Okay. Well, they split Maybe. the vote, but Wayne was going to win that award. For, for which Wayne film? Well, it's True Grit that he won it for, but really it's for a lifetime of, I think, very powerful John Wayne performances. Uh, so that was a given, but there, were, but John Schlesinger was nominated for Best Director, and he won. Mm-hmm. Waldo Salt, the, the screenplay writer, got the Oscar for Best Adapted Screenplay, and most importantly, of course, the movie won Best Picture. So it captured three of the most important Oscars, wow. and really, you know, this was a breakthrough. I mean, Hollywood was hurting. They didn't know what worked these days. You know, the old, as I say, movie musicals were failing. Easy Rider, which was made for <clears throat> something like $300,000, made, you know, $60 million at the box office. I mean, there were, you know, Hollywood's heads were spinning, and they saw a movie like Midnight Cowboy succeed both at the box office and with the Oscars. And they endorsed it, and it became it became groundbreaking. Among other things, it, it sort of laid the ground for a whole decade's worth of gritty New York movies, uh, culminating, I would say, with Martin Scorsese's incredible film Taxi Driver, Taxi Driver. in '76. So it's 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 breaking barriers. It's setting precedents for more adult themes. It really was one of the big groundbreaking movies of that era. 
Thanks for listening to Martin Bandike Undercovers for July 2021. Our interview was with Glenn Frankel about his book, Shooting Midnight Cowboy. This has been a presentation of the Ann Arbor District Library. Everybody's talking at me I don't hear words they're saying Only the echoes of my mind